for a generation of YouTube fans, Mr. Beast has become an almost mythical figure. An ordinary guy creating extraordinary spectacles out of sometimes strangely ordinary topics, from counting to 100,000 to playing tag and hide and seek and all for eye-watering cash prizes. He's buried himself alive, recreated squid games and given away a desert island. He's known for giving those big prizes, cash, houses, cars and food to friends, strangers and as philanthropy and he's built a channel with 90 million subscribers in doing so, earning around 54 million a year according to Forbes. He started a nationwide burger chain, been on Jimmy Kimmel, Joe Rogan, employs over a hundred people and has been at the forefront of some of the biggest philanthropic campaigns on YouTube. But Mr. Beast is part of a larger story, the story of American capitalism, corporate profit and politics, the story of American mythology. It's a story that takes some surprising turns, one in which a complacent media has neglected to follow the money, a story with a narrative that's been shaped twisted and manipulated by corporations like Coca-Cola, monolith chemical and shipping companies, international meat monopolies and the deep pockets of big oil. It's a shadowy story of injured workers, low wages, shady deals, collusion, pollution, bribery and even suicides. What we can see through Mr Beast is not speculation but a perfect postmodern example of how capitalist mythology is manufactured, how it hangs together and shapes all of our lives. So before we get to Mr Beast's philanthropy, we have to do some important groundwork. To make some progress in unravelling the problem, we have to understand the roots of this much wider trend, maybe the most worrying trend of our time. Because propaganda, lobbying, advertising, public relations and the ideological weapons used by big business have become so expertly proficient in obfuscation, run so deeply through back channels to avoid regulation, is so entangled in our culture with philanthropy, education, with the media, that big business can make perfect use out of an affable, generous, seemingly decent and well-meaning figure like Mr Beast. What's interesting with prodigious figures like Mr Beast is not how they manage to do what they do, but what they tell us about the culture that gave rise to them in the first place. What can Mr Beast's success his approach to business and philanthropy and YouTube and entertainment and sponsorship tell us about American culture, capitalist culture, Western culture, and even more about ourselves. Every civilization has its myths. Rome had Romulus and Remus, ancient Greece had Zeus and Achilles, India has Brahma and Vishnu, the British Empire had great explorers and civilizers, and myths all have a function, a purpose, a use in society. 
They all support a narrative about the culture that created them. What is America's myth? Well, I want to start with a quick story. Everyone's heard of Davy Crockett. The ordinary woodsman, the wild king frontiersman, the self-made hero of the American West. He was well known across the country in plays and short stories for his larger-than-life mythical adventures. When the French writer Alexis de Tocqueville toured around America in the wake of its revolution to try to understand what was distinctive about American life, he noted, Two years ago, the inhabitants of the district of which Memphis is the capital sent to the House of Representatives in Congress an individual named Davy Crockett, who has no education, can read with difficulty, has no property, no fixed residence, but passes his life hunting, selling his game to live, and dwelling continuously in the woods. His competitor, a man of wealth and talent, failed. In Europe, a rise to notoriety from such humble, self-made beginnings was impossible. American culture turned Crockett into a legend. A popular song described him as half horse, half alligator. One man wrote, You have heard of the celebrated loco Crockett who can whip his weight in wildcats, jump up higher, fall down lower, and drink more liquors than any man in the state. He is returned now, a very gentle and respectable man. Crockett's meteoric rise became mythical because it seemed to come from nowhere. But as the historian MJ Heal has noted, this isn't strictly true. Crockett's image was actually carefully crafted by politicians and publishers who believed his image would be useful for their cause, libertarianism on the frontier. The idea of a frontiersman out there on his own independent, self-reliant, with no need for federal assistance or elite rule was important to the image of democracy that Jacksonian Democrats were trying to sustain in 19th century America. Jacksonians wanted to expand suffrage to the ordinary man, and in Davy Crockett they saw a compelling narrative that would help them achieve this and win the public image battle. And while he was of course real, Davy Crockett became a mythical figure for this reason. He was exaggerated, used, crafted, memorialized, manipulated, and proliferated for political, economic, social, and cultural reasons. Tocqueville noticed this. Crockett fit in with the image of the American out there alone, apt to imagine that their whole destiny is in their own hands. Heal remarked that, Realising the imaginative power of the West, political managers sought to touch responsive chords in the electorate by finding and fashioning political heroes from beyond the Appalachians. Davy Crockett was one of the first examples of something we love in democratic societies. Underdog stories, adventurers, a self-made man, a man of the people. But stories can be used and misused, appropriated and twisted, reimagined and rewritten in calculative and disingenuous ways. Mm -hmm. 
Mr. Beast is a likeable guy. He's the guy next door. He's the carefree guy having carefree fun with his group of friends. He's ordinary, but he does extraordinary things. What if I filled my friend's house with slime? What if anything you could place in this circle you can keep? What if we went to the Bermuda Triangle? He's also become well known as a generous philanthropist. He's given homeless people homes and $10,000 in cash. He's tipped waitresses $30,000 and given away houses to delivery drivers that turn up at them. Team Trees has organized YouTubers to fundraise to plant 20 million trees and more recently, Team Seas has done the same to remove 40 million kilograms of trash from the ocean. He's even started a second channel, Beast Philanthropy, where he's given away 10,000 turkeys at Thanksgiving, helped after a hurricane, and set up his own food bank. And before we move on, it's really important to say this. This is obviously commendable stuff. This video is not an attack on Mr. Beast's personal morals. It's not a question of whether he's a good person or not. I don't know him. He seems like a nice, generous, hard-working guy who's built a hugely impressive YouTube channel and probably just wants to use his influence to do some good in the world. But because he's so influential, because he's successful enough to be close to some significant organizations, non-profit and for-profit, Looking at Mr. Beast can tell us a lot about some of the trends he's part of and ultimately benefits from himself. So let's have a look at some of these giveaways and philanthropic efforts. First, the most obvious thing to note is that Mr. Beast runs a business, a very, very successful one. Jimmy has said openly that the motivation for these giveaways comes from two places. First, he says it is business. They attract views. They make profit. He wants to be the most successful YouTuber in the world, and he's succeeded. Just kept going and reinvesting, and then I tipped pizza delivery people 100 bucks, and then I tipped a homeless man 10 grand, and then, you know, gave away cars, gave away houses, and last hand take, take hand off million dollars keeps in basically the entire time. So, like, for the last, like, eight or nine years, like every dollar I've made, I just spent it the next month on content. And I just did that every single month and it just kept getting bigger and bigger and here we are. But second, he feels good about doing it. He likes helping people. Let's take a quick look at this first motivation before returning to the second later. Every Mr. Beast video that involves a giveaway of some kind, whether to a friend, a stranger, a homeless person, is paid for by a sponsor. It's a kind of for-profit philanthropy, or what economist Matthew Bishop coined in 2006 as philanthrocapitalism. Bishop writes that philanthrocapitalism encompasses not just the application of modern business techniques to giving, but also the effort by a new generation of entrepreneurial philanthropists and business leaders to drive social and environmental progress by changing how business and government operate. Philanthrocapitalism has become something of a buzzword over the last few years. 
It has several features and is broad enough to vary in meaning and scope depending on who you ask and how you look at it, but essentially it's come to mean treating philanthropy as a business using traditional business methods like a focus on efficiency for philanthropic projects or expecting a return on an investment in some way or another. The merging of business and philanthropy and the involvement of powerful individuals in philanthropic efforts has become a frequent talking point in recent years, with the rise of institutions like the Gates Foundation, the Clinton Foundation, and phenomena like fair trade. Gates has convinced fellow billionaires like Warren Buffett and Mark Zuckerberg to pledge to donate their fortunes to philanthropic efforts. And Mr. Beast has become something of a philanthrocapitalist himself, turning giveaways into advertising revenue, food drives into profitable entertainment, and homelessness into a kind of spectacle that pays. Now, at its best, philanthrocapitalism does some important work. Gates himself has spent considerable resources and effort vaccinating, feeding and helping significant numbers of impoverished people all around the world. But as several authors have pointed out, as we'll see, some of the trends not only have a darker side, but could actually be doing more harm than good. At its worst, as we'll discover, Philanthrocapitalism allows sponsors, donors and big business to whitewash, greenwash and conceal or draw attention away from their otherwise questionable business tactics and propagandise positive spin and public relations to combat disturbing trends that they themselves created and perpetuate. In this way, figures like Mr. Beast can sometimes end up spreading corporate messages, believing that they're doing good and sometimes contributing to even more harm. Mr. Beast's sponsors vary. Some, like Skillshare, could be categorised as simple advertisers, exchanging a fee for a short promotional section of a video like this one. There's no claim of philanthropy from the sponsor, and Mr. Beast uses the money to finance the stunt or the giveaway. In other videos though, as we'll see, the promotion doesn't seem to be the primary objective of the sponsor. But to understand this trend, we need to quickly look at how philanthropic capitalism became a central part of capitalist culture before exploring some of the ways we can identify the damage the trend does today and how Mr. Beast has participated in those harms and how YouTube is becoming fertile ground for a disturbing trend. The late 19th century was the Gilded Age of American capitalism, an era known for greed, corruption, exploitation, and the spread of industrialization and wealth across America. It saw the creation of vast new monopolies in railroads, oil, steel, banking, and media by now household names like Andrew Carnegie, JP Morgan, and John D. Rockefeller. 
These figures came to be labelled as the robber barons because of their tendency to employ oppressive, harsh business tactics, exploiting their workers, and bribing local and national politicians to amass vast fortunes never before seen in America. The robber barons have a mixed legacy. As historian Richard White writes, they've had a contradictory reputation, at first standing for a gilded age of corruption, monopoly, and rampant individualism. Their corporations were the octopus, devouring all in its path. Later though, they were interpreted as entrepreneurs, necessary business revolutionaries, ruthlessly changing existing practices and demonstrating the protean nature of American capitalism. But I want to focus quickly on a particular trend the robber barons have become known for, their philanthropy. Take Andrew Carnegie the Scottish-American industrialist who built a vast steel and railroad empire across America. He gave most of his vast half-a-million-dollar fortune to charity over the course of his later life, and at the time of his death was left with around $30 million. Carnegie was the forerunner to the new capitalist philanthropist model, writing an article, The Gospel of Wealth, to urge capitalists to use their newfound fortunes for good. He wrote that the millionaire will be but a trustee of the poor, entrusted for a season with a great part of the increased wealth of the community, but administering it for the community far better than it could or would have done itself. The wealthy paternalist could dispense with their wealth in a responsible way, building libraries while discouraging, quote, the slothful, the drunken, the unworthy. And while Carnegie was building libraries and donating to churches and universities on the one hand, he was ruthlessly expanding, paying politicians bribes, and subjecting his employees to grim working conditions and paying them just above the poverty line. One worker said that you don't notice any old men here. The long hours, the strain, the sudden changes of temperature use a man up. Sociologist John A. Fitch said that the conditions led to old age at 40. Workers worked seven days a week, 12 hours a day with just one holiday, the 4th of July. And Carnegie's philanthropic turn came after one of the most brutal labour disputes in American history. In 1892, workers were striking at Homestead in Pennsylvania in response to a pay cut. A battle broke out between Carnegie's men and the striking workers, and eventually, 8,000 National Guardsmen were sent in to quell the strike. At least 10 men were killed in the fighting. After the strike was over, Carnegie was sent a telegram by his chairman, Henry Frick. Victory, it said. Carnegie replied, Cables received. First happy morning since July. Congratulate all around. And Frick then responded with, Our victory is now complete and most gratifying. Do not think we will have any serious labour trouble again. 
But Homestead had turned the public against Carnegie, and later, in a letter, he complained that, quote, the mass of public sentiment is not with us about Homestead on the direct issue of readjustment of the wage scale. People did not understand it, but I observed that opinion was greatly impressed by the few acts of kindness. Carnegie knew that there was more than one way to tip the balance of public opinion, and he knew how important public opinion was for doing business. So while his philanthropic efforts ramped up in the following years, it did so at the expense of his some 40,000 workers. Historians have shown that while the value of Carnegie's goods more than doubled over the years following the strike, the wages of his men were cut by 67%. Carnegie had discovered that when it came to profits, public opinion was as important as bribery and wage cuts, and he's probably the most notable example of a trend that became widespread. Around the same time, the oil baron, John D. Rockefeller, was also giving away large sums while simultaneously crushing workers' strikes. In 1914, strikers at Ludlow were gunned down by the National Guard. At least 25 died, including women and children. Rockefeller congratulated the National Guard for, quote, fighting the good fight, which is not only in the interests of your own company, but of other companies in Colorado, and the business interests of the entire country, and labouring classes quite as much. Rockefeller threatened his competitors and chaired secret meetings to monopolise the market and drive up prices. Corporations like Rockefeller's Standard Oil and Carnegie Steel became so powerful that in 1890, Congress passed an antitrust act to weaken the robber barons and break up their monopolies, prohibiting anti-competitive practices, including artificially raising prices. Senator John Sherman, who the act was named after, said that if we will not endure a king as a political power, we should not endure a king over the production, transportation and sale of any of the necessaries of life. In an inquiry, the lawyer Frank Walsh said that it's been stated many times that it might be better for people controlling very large industries instead of devoting the excess profits to the dispensation of money along philanthropic lines that they should organise some system by which they could distribute it in wages first or give to the workers a greater share of the productivity of industry in the first place. In 1911, the Supreme Court split Rockefeller's Standard Oil into 36 smaller companies, including Exxon, Mobile and Chevron. Today, we all know that PR and image is as important as reality. The most savvy public figures curate a kind of mythical figure around themselves, and we can see this phenomenon everywhere. Domino's, for example, recently donated $100,000 to small businesses in a support local campaign, but then spent $50 million on a marketing campaign making sure that everyone knew about it. 
and recently Volkswagen have championed their philanthropic donations to a variety of causes including beach preservation while simultaneously designing low emission vehicles that were rigged to cheat emissions tests. This phenomenon is so widespread it's difficult to choose which examples to pick. And even more worrying, many of these philanthropic contributions end up running through foundations like the Gates Foundation, which, as scholars like sociologist Lindsay McGooey and professor of law Gary Jenkins have argued, have a host of problems that are caught up in this logic of charity in exchange for influence and good PR. McGooey argues that the Gates Foundation is paternalistic, ignores grantees' concerns about their approach, focuses too much on vanity projects and often favours reducing regulations in developing countries. Furthermore, McGooey writes that study after study has proven that only a small percentage of charitable donations from wealthy donors reach poor individuals. Most of it tends to go to alma maters or cultural institutions frequented by the wealthy. The rich also gives less of their incomes proportionately than the poor do. In fact, the number of private charitable foundations have skyrocketed in recent years. About 5,000 are set up every year, despite charitable giving in the US being steady at about 2% of GDP. What explains this? Well, as inequality increases and wages stagnate and billionaires amass pools of wealth so vast it would make Carnegie and Rockefeller's eyes water, what better way to spend that money than on PR and influence that avoids regulation? It's not as crass and transparent as traditional advertising and comes with tax breaks. In this context, of course, whitewashing, greenwashing, and now pinkwashing are everywhere. Take this startling fact. One study in 2012 found that just 7% of donations reached causes that could be defined as a benefit to the average in-need person. Another study found that 55% of grants went to large organisations with budgets over $5 million already. In other words, most donations went to religious or cultural foundations like churches, institutions and museums and galleries which are much more likely to be frequented by the wealthy associates of the wealthy and let's face it, whiter donors who might get a shiny plaque under some modern art piece but are a bit less likely to help individuals who probably just need a few decent meals and some better wages. The French sociologist Pierre Bourdieu called the participation in this kind of activity the accumulation of symbolic capital. That was good deeds, connections and support for institutions that buy you public prestige, power and influence. And this trend over the last few decades has coincided with the loosening of regulation, the rolling back of labour laws and the decline of average salaries and an increase in inequality across the world. 
As Carl Rhodes and Peter Bloom write in The Guardian, what we're witnessing is the transfer of responsibility for public goods and services from democratic institutions to the wealthy to be administered by an executive class. All of this begs an important question. Where's the line between philanthropy and self-interest? Between doing good and looking good? What happens when philanthropy becomes a spectacle for distraction? Much of Mr Beast's reputation centres around his philanthropy. Media outlets like the Associated Press, Looper and The Independent praise Mr Beast uncritically, reporting that he's, quote, rethinking old notions of philanthropy and describing him as YouTube's biggest philanthropist. Scan a few comments, listen to a few podcasts, watch a few interviews, and you'll get the impression that Mr. Beast is seen as a generous, selfless, heroic philanthropist. And again, this is certainly not to take away from all the good Mr. Beast does, the effort he puts in, and his intentions. I think he genuinely cares, he has fun, and he has a huge audience that he's hopefully inspiring to go out and do some good in the world themselves. I want to draw attention though to something else, the wider trend, the problems that arise from this format, the money behind it, and the motivations of some of the people that support the content. Let's start here. In November 2021, Mr Beast and the team spent the day giving away 10,000 turkeys at a food drive in Greenville, North Carolina. The video has almost 6 million views. The 10,000 turkeys, worth a quarter of a million dollars, were donated by Genio, who got credited throughout the video and in the description. In case you're wondering how we got 10,000 turkeys to give away, they all actually came from Genio. And the crazy thing is, this is their largest donation ever. Last year, they donated over 400,000 pounds of turkeys to people in need. Like this. Where'd you get that from? I found it. That's not fake. This oven-ready turkey from Ginny-O. <laughs> did they tell you to say that? They did. They gave me $3 and a turkey. They're also pre-seasoned. And more importantly, they gave us 10,000 turkeys to give away at this food drive, so I forbid you from buying a turkey from any other brand for this Thanksgiving. This is the Thanksgiving turkey now. Obviously, we couldn't have done it without them. Of course, while a quarter of a million dollar donation sounds like, and in some ways is, a lot of money, it's a small figure for a company whose parent company, the food conglomerate Hormel Foods, is worth $27 billion. A quarter of a million is around the same price a company like this might pay for a television commercial that would be shorter, more direct, less likely to go viral, and soon disappear into the other of forgotten adverts. And of course, this video does not come across like an advert at all. It appears to be a simple philanthropic act from a socially responsible company. Jenny O, Vice President of Marketing Nicole Ben, told the Associate Press that he's entertaining, and he makes giving back and these philanthropic tie-ins really cool to be part of. 
And she told WINT that what a great way for Jenny O to partner with somebody that we can really tell the story about making sure everybody has a Thanksgiving turkey on their table for that special holiday. She continues, no matter what their gathering size is, Jenny O is going to be helping provide turkeys for families and then they just have to bring the sides and really enjoy Thanksgiving all together. Comments from articles like these and the articles themselves have been syndicated across the web by outlets like The Independent, Yahoo News and US News. So, other than the obvious publicity, what motivation could Jenny O have for publicly giving away free turkeys every year? Well, Jenny O is owned by Hormel Foods, a huge conglomerate which owns over 40 brands including Jenny O, Spam, Applegate and Skippy Peanut Butter. Conglomerates like Hormel, Nestle, PepsiCo and, as we'll see in a second, Smithfield dominate the market in the US and much of the rest of the world. In 2021, Hormel, Jenny O's parent, and Smithfield, who Mr Beast has also worked with in this Feeding America video, were both accused of being involved in an illegal price-fixing scheme to inflate the prices of pork and increase their profits. These two companies, Hormel and Smithfield, along with two others, Tyson and JBS control 80% of the meat market in the United States. The lawsuit accused the suppliers of trying to, quote, fix, raise, stabilize, and maintain artificially inflated prices for pork sold in the United States since 2009. In 2021, Smithfield, whose Chinese owner, WH Group, is the world's largest supplier of pork, settled, paying $83 million in fines. And there's been an increase in the discovery of similar price-fixing schemes in big meat in recent years. In 2021, Tyson Foods and Pilgrim's Pride were fined $221 million and $108 million, respectively, for doing the same thing in the poultry industry. And seafood giant Bumblebee Food CEO Chris Listuinski was sentenced to 14 months in prison in 2020 for price-fixing in the tuna industry. Is it a coincidence that the same people who are affected by price-fixing schemes that satisfy rich CEOs and shareholders but drive up the price of everyday essentials are the same people who need to come to a food drive to get handouts at Thanksgiving? In 2021, The Guardian investigated the effect these huge food monopolies have on our economies and societies. Nina Lakyani, Alia Utiova, and Alvin Chang write that a handful of powerful companies control the majority market share of almost 80% of dozens of grocery items bought regularly by ordinary Americans. These conglomerates have been growing in power since the 80s as regulations have been weakened. Mergers and acquisitions have been encouraged to cut costs and lobbying of politicians has increased, while at the same time half of the least well-paid jobs are in the food industry. 
The conditions are getting worse too. One study in 2013 found that 42% of poultry workers had some evidence of carpal tunnel. One former worker at Chicken Quick said that there are so many injustices there. Sometimes you get really dizzy from how fast the line speed went, but we're not allowed to say we're not going to work at this speed. They're not asking you, they're telling you you have to do it. In 2019, these workers at Genio went on strike when one claimed she wasn't offered medical attention and was fired after her hand got stuck in a machine she was never trained to work on in the first place. Debbie Berkowitz of the National Employment Law Project said that the meatpacking industry is much more dangerous now than in the 90s, and the biggest factors are consolidation and cutting corners of worker safety. And Amanda Starbuck, a policy analyst at Food and Water Watch, told The Guardian that it's a system designed to funnel money into the hands of corporate shareholders and executives while exploiting farmers and workers and deceiving consumers about choice, abundance and efficiency. So remember, Genio spent a quarter of a million dollars on this video with Mr Beast. The previous year, during the 2020 election cycle, the food industry spent $175 million on lobbying and political contributions. Two thirds went to Republicans who want to roll back regulations even further. And to understand how much of an effect this has and how popular it's become with the industry, it's worth noting that the figure was only 29 million in 1992. These conglomerates dominate our shelves and our politics while driving out competition and inflating prices. Genio's parent, Hormel Foods Profits, have skyrocketed in recent years, while the price farmers get paid for meat has declined at the same time. Across the world, while food conglomerates do well, farmers are struggling financially, getting into debt and facing a mental health crisis. The same report in The Guardian writes, Advocates say that a toxic mix of financial woes, climate chaos and trade wars have contributed to a mental health crisis among farmers. Farmers are one of the most likely groups to take their own lives in countries including the US, Australia, the UK and India. In the Midwest alone, 450 farmers committed suicide between just 2014 and 2018. In the UK, a farmer takes their life every week. And in India, 270,000 farmers have died by suicide since 1995. The president of Family Farm Action, Joe Maxwell, told The Guardian that the economic power of these corporations enable them to wield huge political influence, so we have a system in which farmers are on a treadmill just trying to stay afloat. Basically, there's a handful of individuals in the world, mostly white men, who make money by dictating who farms, what gets farmed and who gets to eat. Consumer choice is an illusion. The transnationals control everything in this extractive agricultural model. 
Furthermore, farming in the US relies on an influx of some 2.5 million undocumented migrants. These are workers who have no recourse, no rights, and likely no healthcare. And before we even get to the wage stagnation workers have experienced since the 70s, the increasing inequality across the world, the pollution the meat industry emits, Hormel Foods' share price looks like this. So as long as Genio can improve their image by throwing a quarter of a million dollars to partner with a fun YouTuber that probably isn't going to ask many questions, has more influence than any farmer, worker or migrant, then they probably don't have much to worry about. And we can see something similar happening under the surface of Mr. Beast's Team C's campaign. In this video, I cleaned the world's dirtiest beach, Mr. Beast and friends commendably organized to clean up trash from Bayos de Hiana in the Dominican Republic. The storyline is classic Mr. Beast, as they realize how long something is taking, how insurmountable the task is, the stunt escalates as they bring in more volunteers and eventually admit that obviously the beach is going to get dirty again. Then, this ocean cleanup device, a trash-eating robot, is introduced and they tell the viewer that for every one dollar you donate, one pound of trash can be removed from the ocean. Half of the money will go towards paying volunteers to clean beaches, while the other half will go to ocean cleanup. Many have already questioned the premise. Science YouTuber Simon Clark has pointed out that the project is problematic and could end up doing more harm than good. There's up to 150 million tons of plastic in the ocean, much of which is small microplastics which just cannot be removed like this, if at all, and we add another 8 million tons each year, a figure that continues to rise. Team C's stated goal to remove 13,600 tons is, quite literally, a drop in the ocean. As Clark points out, Team C's will remove in three years what's added in 15 hours. And many marine biologists have also questioned the premise, pointing out that the problem is much more systemic. But I want to ask a different question. Why is the project so popular in the first place? Why are we focusing on this trash-eating robot in the first place? Why have solutions like this attracted the attention of so many YouTubers? Clark calls it the misdirection of attention. So why is our attention drawn to this solution, but not other ones? While machines like this look pretty cool and taking your friends to clean up really dirty beaches might make for exciting content, much more engaging than one lobbying the government and plastic industry for change, we can also follow the money here and find out who is funding the promotion of devices like this. Ocean Cleanup lists its partners on its website. They include Cefalio, the world's second largest manufacturer of plastic sunglasses, Axo Nobel, an $8.5 billion multinational manufacturer of paint and chemicals, and right at the top, under our most generous partners, 
Coca-Cola, who are, quote, the world's worst plastic polluter for the fourth year in a row in 2021, according to the NGO Break Free From Plastic. So let's quickly talk about why the world's best-known supplier of gut-rotting sugar in ocean-rotting plastic would want to spend so much money funding a philanthropic shiny garbage eater. Coca-Cola obviously have a huge budget. They spend around $4 billion a year on advertising and $1 billion a year on philanthropic grants, which, as I hope I've convinced you by now, should be included as a type of advertising, really, and often as literal direct lobbying. In 2005, for example, Coca-Cola donated a million dollars to the American Association of Pediatric Dentistry. Yes, kids' dentistry. And like clockwork, this study found that there was a shift in tone on the subject of sugary drinks from the AAPD. Quote, from describing soft drinks as a significant factor in tooth decay to describing the scientific evidence of the relationship as unclear. Another 2013 philanthropic donation from Coca-Cola and PepsiCo went to the NAACP and the Hispanic Federation. Afterwards, both groups joined Coca-Cola and PepsiCo in a protest against a proposed New York ban on large sugary drinks, arguing that the move would disproportionately affect minorities. Coca-Cola and PepsiCo funded 95 public health organisations between 2011 and 2015, and often the influence the donations have on the organisations is explicit. The Associated Press discovered leaked Coca-Cola emails that revealed they were directly involved in shaping policy at anti-obesity group GEBN after they received a $1.5 million donation. Coca-Cola's chief health and science officer was involved in advising on content for the website, editing the mission statement, and even choosing senior staff. The emphasis of the advice was in shifting the blame from sugar being responsible for obesity to other factors, like a lack of exercise. The British Medical Journal reported that an analysis of thousands of emails has shown the extent to which Coca-Cola has sought to obscure its relationship with scientists, minimise perception of its role, and use researchers to promote industry-friendly messaging. These findings represented, quote, a low point in the history of public health. Another study found that Save the Children received $5 million from Coca-Cola and PepsiCo in 2009, and their campaign for attacks on sugary sodas soon mysteriously disappeared. So of course Coca-Cola have an interest in promoting a philanthropic cause that supports the appearance that their millions of tonnes of plastic waste can simply be cleaned up afterwards that we can all continue using plastic and go on like we are, rather than focusing on real change that will affect their bottom line. And instead of relying on bad taste advertising and lobbying that might affect their public image, corporations like Genio and Coca-Cola have discovered a much more behind-the-scenes and ambiguous funnel that looks something like this. First, invest heavily in philanthropic efforts that align with profits. Second, 
these efforts become the most well-funded, which then affect the popularity and clout of the talking points around those topics, while simultaneously being able to cover the cause's websites and operations in corporate logos for free advertising, while also benefiting from the positive press coverage. Take one more top supporter of Ocean Cleanup, AP Müller, Mursk, the largest shipping company in the world, with arms in oil drilling, oil tankers and air freight, and who have been accused of being responsible for abusive working conditions and harsh labour practices across the world. Mursk are making a commendable effort to decarbonise at the moment, but why? Well, shipping accounts for 3% of the globe's carbon emissions, burning 300 million metric tonnes of fossil fuels every year, and the industry is nowhere near meeting the Paris Climate Agreement goals that most agree are needed to keep the rise of global temperatures below 2%. Rather than decreasing, shipping emissions actually rose by 10% between 2012 and 2018, and regulators are beginning to realise that tougher restrictions are inevitably going to be needed. By 2026, for example, shipping companies like Maersk in the EU will have to pay a tax on carbon emissions. Like Coca-Cola, Maersk has a clear vested interest in supporting the cleanup of pollution after it's been used to generate profits, rather than supporting causes that might actually make a difference in the first place. The corporate funneling of resources into philanthropy that share their message means that the media are more likely to listen to the non-profits, like Ocean Cleanup, uncritically. Corporations get what they want without the crassness of advertising, or risking the bad press from lobbying politicians directly. Instead, they end up financing and using useful idiots. A term I don't really like, I'm not calling Mr Beast an idiot, but it goes some way in capturing the logic. Naive entertainers and uncritical journalists who end up on their side without even really knowing or considering why. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled, convincing the world he didn't exist, disappearing into the shadowy margins using sleights of hand and misdirection. Oceanic Society writes about the best way to reduce plastic pollution in the ocean. Beach cleanups are there, but the top two are to reduce the use of plastics in the first place and, quote, support legislation to curb plastic production and waste. By supporting specific causes, companies like Genio, Coca-Cola and Maersk are essentially saying, don't worry about this huge mess we're all making, guys. We can just tidy it up tomorrow, in the morning. Katie Matthews, chief scientist at advocacy group Oceana, told Vox that it's like mopping up the spill when the spigot is still on. We can't clean up our way out of plastic pollution. But once they become magically well-funded, Ocean Cleanup and other projects like them become the topic of conversation, a trend, a talking point, placed on a pedestal to divert attention away from the real problem. 
They get turned into spectacle, exciting new content-worthy tech, massaged into flashy YouTuber-supported positive image, supplanting the rather dull, laborious and costly task of actually changing our attitudes, reducing use and affecting real change. And it's worth quickly noting that this, of course, is everywhere. For example, in leaked documents describing the agrochemical giant Monsanto's funding of grantees that happened to disagree with banning its controversial pesticide Roundup, a Monsanto executive states that the key will be keeping Monsanto in the background so as not to harm the credibility of the information. In another study, during a merger between telecommunications giants Comcast and NBCU, its author Susan Crawford found that, quote, the company encouraged letters to the FCC from more than 1,000 non-profits, including community centres, rehabilitation centres, civil rights groups, community colleges, sports programmes and senior citizen groups. What these organisations know about telecommunications mergers is unclear. Another leaked document from the oil giant Mobil describes how donations should have a benefit to Mobil. And in this study of donations, authors Marianne Bertrand, Mathilde Bombardini, Raymond Fisman, Brad Hakkinen and Francisco Trebi describe corporate philanthropy as a hall of mirrors. They write that their research robustly shows that, quote, non-profits are more likely to comment on the same regulation as their donors, and that this co-commentary is most strongly associated with donations in the year immediately preceding the comments. In short, the study found that a donation leads to a 76% chance of a shift in commentary. And sometimes the influence is even more direct. We can see this trend illustrated most clearly through one of its worst examples, the Bill, Hillary and Chelsea Clinton Foundation. The non-profit, which has raised around $2 billion, has been plagued with accusations of conflicts of interest, cash for favours and a lack of transparency. One employee claimed he could point to over 500 conflicts of interest at the foundation. The foundation's annual event is described as a place for, quote, showcasing opportunities, a place where members can publicise their philanthropy to the nearly 1,000 members of the media who are on site at the annual meeting each year to report on the accomplishments of CGI members. To attend this prestigious event, you have to have paid a $20,000 membership fee. McGooey writes that it's an annual extravaganza permitting donors to announce vast donations secure in the knowledge that a promise is not exactly a binding commitment. There is no global cabal of philanthropic bounty hunters making sure CGI attendees make good on their pledges. And some of the motivations of the foundation's donors are crystal clear. Mining magnate Frank Guistra travelled with Clinton around developing nations on a philanthropic mission. Clinton brought the contacts and Guistra bought the MD-87 private jet. 
In Kazakhstan, Clinton and Guistra happened to dine with the then president, Nursultan Nazarbayev, and they happened to discuss Guistra's mining interests. Three days later, a $450 million deal was announced, which stunned the mining industry. Later, Clinton and Guistra met the president of Colombia, Alvaro Uribe. Soon after, a $250 million oil venture was struck with a shell company that had links to Guistra. If this is philanthropy, it's really rewarding. And I imagine most people don't dream of securing multi-million dollar contracts while they're volunteering to feed the homeless. More and more corporations are cutting out the middleman and starting their own foundation so that they can philanthropize directly. This accounts for that rise in private foundations we talked about earlier. One of the worst offenders here is Walmart. Its foundation lobbies against higher taxes, contributes to political candidates and think tanks, and supports the privatization of education. It's also been accused of illegally lobbying in areas it wants Walmart to expand into. So when it comes to Coca-Cola, Genio, Walmart, Big Meat, Big Oil, chemical companies, mining interests, let's call a spade a spade and call it what it is. It's not philanthropy, it's lobbying. Often indirect lobbying, but lobbying all the same, lobbying public opinion. In fact, an old 1946 lobbying act described a lobbyist as any person who shall engage himself for pay or for any consideration of the purpose of attempting to influence the passage or defeat of any legislation by the Congress of the United States. What corporations have discovered is that influence is much more influential and much more hidden when they take their cash a bit more upstream, away from Congress and into the court of public opinion. I want to turn now to how the narratives financed by corporate cash function to support the status quo, resist change and boost profits. The narratives hang together with the help of a couple of threads that we can see running through Mr Beast's videos. First, the narrative tends to make people feel good. It has a feel-good factor. And second, the narrative tends to give the impression that the current way of doing business and politics is fine, and they, the elite, have got this covered. Take a look at this campaign from Domino's Pizza, Paving for Pizza. It went viral in 2018 when Domino's committed to filling potholes around America and telling its customers that those holes ruin your delicious pizza en route. These are some pictures of some of the paving projects. We have a link on our CBS 42 News app for you to nominate a road in your area. Just search paving for pizza. The campaign gets picked up by endless websites and news outlets who eagerly display the images of trucks with the Domino's logo filling holes again with the Domino's logo next to signs with the Yes Domino's logo. As Bernie Sanders complained at the time, 
coverage usually happened to sidestep or ignore the question of why there were so many potholes in the first place. Author Anand Girard Haradas told Fast Company that roads should be a pretty open and shut case for government. We don't need pizza companies to build roads. We need pizza companies to pay their workers enough and pay their taxes. He continued, they use the do-gooding to undermine the idea of solving these problems together. It's not just like subsidising a road. At some point, on some panel somewhere, their road paving will then be used to say, it's better to keep taxes low, it's better to have government not do a lot, that the private sector can step up. Girid Haradas makes an incisive point. The basic premise of supplying public goods is that, unfortunately, it's work. Coming together, paying taxes, solving problems comes at a cost in time and resources that, as an investment, pays us all dividends as a community later on. The community, all of us, chip in taxes, and everyone reaps the benefits equally. Of course, when this is left to private individuals, it leaves a massive question mark as to whether these services will be supplied to everyone equally, rather than just the roads that Domino's happen to need for profit. Mr Beast's sponsorship relies on the same logic. They have to be entertaining, have a feel-good factor, they have to get views, when in reality, difficult problems like global warming, labour rights, not needing a handout at Thanksgiving, is not always fun, can't always be fun-washed and turned into an entertaining spectacle. It often leaves commentators like this one feeling like they've contributed to solving a problem just by clicking like and sitting through an advert. And it gives the impression that problems can be solved on a win-win basis, a positive sum game, where we can all use the market to exchange our way out of problems and difficulties and all make a profit at the same time, where I'll only give some change to a homeless person if I get something in return, where I must be entertained to do philanthropy, where I only donate to any cause in return to sponsorship deals and I only support those causes that align with my interests in some way. Economist Fred Hirsch called this the commercialization effect, when the introduction of commercial mechanisms into an idea or an object or a relationship changes the nature of that thing. Philosopher Michael Sandel points to examples like hiring friends for the day, paying for a best man speech, auctioning off college admissions and selling adverts on police cars and ambulances. Commercialising certain things that are meant to be based on such old-fashioned things like values and fairness and meaning twists and changes that thing beyond recognition. You can't buy a friend. A friend is meant to mean something deeper. A best man speech isn't the same if it's written by an algorithm, say. Hirsch, who coined the term, said that the commercialization effect was the effect on the characteristics of a product or activity of supplying it exclusively or predominantly on commercial terms rather than on some other basis, such as informal exchange, mutual obligation, 
altruism or love or feelings of service or obligation. When philanthropy is commercialized in this way, it has to drain it of important questions, conceal any unfavorable elements, and draw out the feel-good factor. Should these things really make us feel good though? Or should they make us feel guilty, lazy, spur us into action rather than provide escapism? What happens when a story that needs the limelight is not a feel-good story? What happens if it's depressing, violent, difficult? When corporations are motivated by profit to support philanthropic causes that only align with their motives and then partner with the media in a way that anaesthetizes the problem to make everyone feel better, then of course the more difficult, boring, academic, less well-funded solutions will get crowded out. Who wants to read about plastic pollution when they can go and watch a Mr. Beast video? Which leads us to the second phenomenon that ties this narrative together, what I'll call the Big Man Effect. The new philanthropists, from Carnegie and Rockefeller to Clinton, Mr. Beast and Coca-Cola and Genio, lead us to an important question that I mentioned earlier. Where's the line between altruism and self-interest? And does it matter? In the 1960s, anthropologists studying tribes in Papua New Guinea discovered a phrase the tribespeople had, the big man. They found that tribe leaders had become well-known and respected for one skill in particular, giving gifts. This gift-giving created a unique type of economy, one where who gave gifts to whom and when acted as a type of exchange for reputation and power. The aim of the big man, the anthropologist Chris Gregory reported, is to acquire a large body of people, gift debtors, who are obligated to him. Another anthropologist, Marcel Mouse, looked at these studies in his influential essay, The Gift. He argued that giving gifts was sometimes a type of power. It increased the gift giver's prestige. The absolutist ruler of France, King Louis XIV, known for his extravagant palace and spending, was also a generous supporter of the arts. One of his contemporaries wrote of Louis that let him who wants, or rather who will be able to do so in a worthy fashion, speak of the wisdom of this great king who provided the life of grace to so many souls by this holy zeal, his patience, his gentleness, his gifts, by laws as salutary as they are just. Louis created a cult of personality, becoming known as the Sun King, the centre of France's universe. He commissioned busts of himself and portraits and supported ballet and theatre and music that ultimately functioned as well as royal propaganda. Louis knew that in the eyes of the public, more than anything, it was important how one looked. His gifts, like the leaders of tribes in Papua New Guinea, established prestige. His people were his children, looked after by a benevolent benefactor. 
Oscar Wilde wrote a famous essay critiquing charity, saying that it was really about prestige. He complained about how the so-called benevolence of wealthy Victorian industrialists was a means to compensate for their harsh labour practices. He wrote that the best among the poor are never grateful, they are ungrateful, discontented, disobedient and rebellious, they are quite right to be so. Why should they be grateful for the crumbs that fall from the rich man's table? They should be seated at the board and are beginning to know it. And the French poet Baudelaire saw through this too. In a short story about a man giving a counterfeit coin to a beggar, he wrote that his aim had been to do a good deed while at the same time making a good deal, to earn 40 cents and the heart of God, to win paradise economically, in short, to pick up gratis the certificate of a charitable man. The French philosopher Jacques Derrida also saw gifts were full of double meanings. They can be remedies, they can be selfless, but they can be self-interested, calculated, even poisonous and double-edged. Does this mean we should always look at Mr Beast videos like this cynically, as always motivated by profit and self-interest? Not necessarily. As Derrida saw, we have multiple, overlapping, sometimes contradictory motivations in life. But we should always try and demystify what those motivations are and what the results of them are. Mr Beast is not solving a homelessness problem. Homelessness will never be solved in this way. In fact, What's commercialised in videos like this is our fascination with just how unlikely this is to happen. Of course we can't help but click on a video like this. Of course we're all curious, because it's such a singular event, such a one-off, so astronomically improbable that we just have to see the reaction. But when it comes to widespread structural social issues like pollution, homelessness, poverty and hunger, philanthropy like this doesn't cut it. The gifts, when caught up in a web of PR, misdirection and whitewashing, have the same effect as placing a little band-aid over a cut, just enough to mask it, just enough to boost image, to make everyone involved look good without ever addressing the underlying problem. In the German ideology, Karl Marx wrote that the ideas of the ruling class are in every epoch the ruling ideas i.e. the class which is the ruling material force of society is at the same time its ruling intellectual force, the class which has the means of material production at its disposal, has control at the same time over the means of mental production, so that thereby, generally speaking, the ideas of those who lack the means of mental production are subject to it, the ruling ideas are nothing more than the ideal expression of the dominant material relationships. The dominant material relationships grasped as ideas. 
Of course corporations with deep pockets want to be associated with fun YouTubers who won't ask too many questions. Of course they want to look like they're solving problems and acting benevolently in everyone's interest. Capitalist mythology creates a kind of modern priestly figure, a feel-good entertainer, a generous big man, crafted by profit, image, PR and spectacle, someone that just gets stuff done, that doesn't need the government or the community and could do it all for clicks, views and likes. The new philanthrocapitalism creates the impression that the elite, their flashy robots and fun-loving entertainers and their technology, have everything under control. In his book Mythologies, Roland Barthes comments on the French priest Abbé Pierre, who became a famous household media figure in France in the post-war period. Barthes wrote that he was interested in the enormous consumption of media about him by the public. He said that the public, no longer having access to the real experience of apostleship, except through the bric-a-brac associated with it, are getting used to acquiring a clear conscience by merely looking at the shop window of saintliness. And I get worried about a society which consumes with such avidity the display of charity that it forgets to ask itself questions about its consequences, its uses and its limits. And I then start to wonder whether the fine and touching iconography of the Abbé Pierre is not the alibi which a sizeable part of the nation uses in order, once more, to substitute with impunity the signs of charity for the reality of justice. Michael Edwards, a former executive of the Ford Foundation, has become a vocal critic of the new philanthrocapitalist mentality. He argues that, among other things, it's eroding support for government spending on public services, and it's simply never going to replace us coming together to solve problems democratically. In 2020, for example, the Gates Foundation, of course the biggest of them all, spent $5 billion. In contrast, the US government budget is almost $7 trillion. And there are another 1.4 million registered non-profits in America, and most of them, about 73%, have budgets under half a million. And millions and millions of people volunteer for these charities every day. This is where the real work happens. With nothing in return, just volunteering. McGooey writes that Edwards and other outspoken critics point out that private philanthropy is no substitution for hard-fought battles over labour laws and social security, in part because philanthropy can be retracted on a whim while elected officials, at least in theory, have citizens to answer to. On the one hand, wealthy PR departments support entertaining videos and ad campaigns and philanthropy and spend a fortune on lobbying, while on the other, they preside over an economy that by many measures is getting worse. Today, the share of young people running their own business has fallen by two-thirds since the 1980s, 
low paid work has declined and the income of the bottom half has stagnated while the rich have gotten immeasurably richer. Health outcomes for many groups are declining, mental health problems are becoming an epidemic and there's a stark divide between wealthier cities and left behind rural areas. Angel Guiria from the OECD wrote that elite figures like to focus on convenient issues that sideline, quote, rising inequalities of income, wealth and opportunities, the growing disconnect between finance and the real economy, mounting divergence in productivity levels between workers, firms and regions, winner-take-most dynamics in many markets, limited progressivity of our tax systems, corruption and capture of politics and institutions by vested interests, lack of transparency and participation by ordinary citizens in decision-making, the soundness of education and of the values we transmit to future generations. He says that ultimately they found a variety of ways to change things on the surface, but in practice, nothing changes at all. And Girard Haradas writes in his book, Winners Take All, that the elite charade that they're changing the world, quote, improves the image of the winners. With its private and voluntary half measures, it crowds out public solutions that would solve problems for everyone and do so with or without the elite's blessing. And money loves a man of the people image, a self-made man, that through grit and hard work and determination can make it in the same system that they themselves have made it in and are defending. You can see the same logic play out on Fox News, which has styled itself as a kind of defender of the working class, the ordinary man and woman, to be associated with the authenticity of Mr. Beast, his everyday Davy Crockett appeal is, for corporations, priceless. Add to that the feel-good factor and viewers come away with the impression that they've helped enact change, that in helping others we can have our cake and eat it too. Political theorist Jody Dean has talked about how many types of online participation, including petitions, likes, surveys and social media comments, actually become depoliticizing because they create a fantasy of participation and change. She writes that, weirdly, then, the circulation of communication is depoliticizing, not because people don't care or don't want to be involved, but because we do. Or put more precisely, it is depoliticizing because the form of our involvement ultimately empowers those it's supposed to resist. As Michael Sandel puts it, other values, other solutions, other forms of organisation get crowded out. But the ethics of helping others, the difficult work of addressing hard problems, and the dry deliberation and research of politics and political issues cannot be reduced to an exchange for entertainment. Morality does not arise from a positive sum exchange. I don't give the homeless man a penny and expect a little jig in return. Philanthropy is difficult. It usually comes at a cost in time, in effort, in money, in resources. And if everything gets turned into a marketable exchange, 
a commercial venture motivated by profit and material reward, then what happens to the issues and areas and people and ideas that aren't polished and content worthy? When we uncritically leave philanthropy in the hands of big tech moguls, YouTube personalities, oil barons and Clintons, we get shiny robots and halls of mirrors, we get a few planted seeds, we get distractions, we get spectacle and entertainment, we get empty libraries and more food banks and lower wages, we get whitewashing, greenwashing, pinkwashing, funwashing, and now YouTube washing. Thank you as always for watching, and a huge thanks of course, as always, to my Patreons, without which this just wouldn't be possible. So if you want to see scripts, if you want to chat in the Discord server, if you want your name in the credits, but most of all, if you just want to help support make this content, then click the link in the description below. If not, you can like, you can share, you can leave a comment, all those things that help the algorithm. Thank you so much, and I'll see you next time.